Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. We missed everybody last week, but we are back. It is June. It's a great, you know, summer is always a great time for Harry Potter fans. We remember the the books that came out over the summer. That was always very, a very special time. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, J.K. Rowling over the past week announced another children's book. This is something she has not done since she finished the Harry Potter series back in 2007. It's called The Ichabog, and it is a political fairy tale. This is the one she has been teasing for a while. Has anybody read this yet? I read no. chapter one. Do you like it so far? Yeah. I mean, it's it's very much, you can tell that it's a you know morality tale about the abuses of power um, by... Mm-hmm certain leadership so it's you know i think very timely not just for now but you could really apply it to a lot of different time frames and and countries um so really is applicable for teaching the kinds of lessons about the abuses of power that we see in harry potter even though Mm, the ichabod has nothing to do with harry potter did anybody else think ichabod crane when they heard the name or is that just me (laughs) it's kind of a very unique (laughs) sounding word hmm. she said the idea for the ichabod came to me while i was still writing harry potter i wrote most of a first draft in fits and starts between potter books intending to publish it after harry potter and the deathly hallows however after the last potter book i wanted to take a break from publishing which ended up lasting five years in that time i wrote the casual vacancy and robert galbraith wrote the cuckoo's calling (laughs) after some dithering i decided i wanted to step away from children's books for a while at that point the first draft of the ichabog went up into the attic where it remained for nearly a decade over time i came to think of it as a story that belonged to my two younger children because i'd read it to them in the evenings when they were little which has always been a happy family memory the ichabog is a story about truth and the abuse of power to forestall one obvious question And Laura, you may have been wondering this. The idea came to me well over a decade ago, so it isn't intended to be read as a response to anything that's happening in the world right now. The themes are timeless and could apply to any era or any country. Mm -hmm. And I will also add, J.K. Rowling said when announcing this book that the pandemic kind of inspired her to finally publish this because she knew kids needed something to read right now. So she is publishing this chapter by chapter on her website now through early July. And then it will be published in physical and ebook formats this November. So right. I haven't started reading it yet because I'd rather read it once it's all out. So maybe I'll wait until... I won't wait till November, but once it's all published online. Right. And by the way, she also said that proceeds from the book will be going to uh, funds that will help people who are struggling during the pandemic, which is You great. just can't handle the anticipation, can you, Andrew? You know, going from <laughs> one day to the next, I think there's like 10 chapters that have been released to date. But... Yeah, and there's like 34 total. And they're kind of short, right? So I just don't want to jump in and out. Just to add one other thing to what you said, though, about... Um, the publication portion of it, she is encouraging young kids to submit art that will eventually be published in these books, depending upon the region in which they're submitted. So I think that's actually really cool that kids that that are seven to nine, I think the age range is, will get the opportunity to have their artwork published in a book by J.K. Rowling. 
Yeah, what an incredible opportunity. Everybody follows J.K. Rowling on Twitter. Everybody knows that she has been, over the past few days, retweeting a lot, a lot of illustrations by children after they read these chapters of the Ichabog. And it was, honestly, I had to mute J.K. Rowling because there was too many tweets. I mean, it's probably like 200 at this point. And I get why she's doing it. It's her Twitter account, whatever. But I decided that I would do my own sketch of the Ichabod. <laughs> and I didn't tweet it to J.K. Rowling. But you haven't read it yet. So how do you know what well, it looks I like? Just, I looked at the illustrations by children and I just made my oh face. My it God. has to come from within, Andrew. It has to, You have to feel the Ichabod within you. <laughs> so I drew something really bad on my iPad. And I said, I said, Pat, tweet this to her. I didn't want her to, just in case she recognized me. And how, and how did Pat do that? Like, what did he say? This is from my... Seven-year-old nephew? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'll read you the tweet. Oh, God. Hi, J.K. Rowling. My son, Andrew, just turned 10 and drew his version of Ichabod on my iPad. I thought this guy was just yelling for Ichabod, but Andrew informs me he is just screaming his own name. So J.K. Rowling did not retweet this, but she did favorite it. And that is the first time that Pat has been favorited by J.K. Rowling. Wow. You're welcome, Pat. Wow. Congrats to Pat. I've not been favorited by J.K. Rowling, so he's got a leg up on me. I read this tweet in the wild. I happened to just come across it. I said to myself, I didn't know Pat had a son. And I didn't know Pat, had, like, probably from a previous relationship. And I, di- I didn't know his kid was named Andrew. That's like, weird. I completely fell for it. Wow. I completely fell. Well, now it all comes full circle. How long did it take for you to realize what was going well, on? Well, and it like I did a double take, and then I was like, "But this artwork really doesn't look like a thirty-year-old man drew it." So I'm well, still yeah, confused. I'm not a good artist. Yeah. <laughs> now, now is Pat okay with the fact that his tweet was liked by J.K. Rowling on the basis of a lie? <laughs> it's bad karma, well, or does yeah. it not matter? It's just. She liked it. I'm good with it. Ill-gotten gains. He knew what he was getting into. Yeah. He's dating somebody who trolls J.K. Rowling, like, full time. So (laughs) I see she's still retweeting drawings this morning. So, panel, why don't you guys draw something and send it to her and pretend you're an eight-year-old and maybe she'll share it. So uh, is the goal then to cover the Ichabod after it's been kind of all online? Is that what we can tell people? Yeah, I think so. She will have finished publishing the Ichabog online right around the time we're wrapping up our chapter-by-chapter series for Order of the Phoenix. So I would expect us to do a review, spend an episode reviewing the book, just talking about the book in mid to late July, maybe early August. Got it. But uh, yeah, and I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is I think this is geared towards younger audiences, even younger than Harry Potter was. Mm -hmm. So we may not have too much to say about it, but we will definitely talk about it. Cool. So in some other news, all of the Harry Potter movies are finally available in one streaming app in the United States. This actually came by surprise. HBO Max just launched. This is the new Netflix and Hulu. This is a new competitor for them. Um, It's got thousands of movies, TV shows. Um, original series, of course, just like Netflix and Hulu. And we actually weren't expecting Harry Potter to be there, even though it would make sense because Warner Media owns the Harry Potter series. We didn't expect the movies to be there because NBC had a deal in which they had the streaming rights through 2025. But HBO somehow bought the rights back, and now all eight Harry Potter movies, plus Fantastic Beasts 2, but not Fantastic Beasts 1, are on HBO Max. 
Are any of you signing up for this? No. I have it. And yeah, I was very surprised to see Harry Potter on there, as well as a lot of like old Looney Tunes and a bunch of other series I never got to watch, like Westworld. So I'm looking forward to it. It's nice to know that Harry Potter streaming is accessible to me. I do have all the DVDs and Blu-rays, but yeah, uh, it's always nice to see, oh, if I am stranded somewhere at night, but I have internet access, I can watch a Harry Potter movie. Yeah. yeah. So here's the, the question that I have, though, is if you are already a subscriber to HBO and you have HBO Go, what's the difference? Is it just the library you, is larger for HBO Max? Yes, it is the same price as HBO. Basically, HBO Max is the new digital HBO. Your account may actually work with HBO Max. You should try logging in. That's their goal. It's to make all the existing HBO Go and HBO Now accounts work on HBO Max. But it depends on which on which cable provider you have and did you buy the subscription directly from HBO, stuff like that. But you should be able to log in. Give it a try, Micah, and then watch um, Sex in the City. Uh, I will let you know on the next episode. Okay, cool. You want to watch together since you... Sure. Okay. Yeah. To Eric's point, it is nice to be able to access the movies without having to pop in a disc. I know some people are saying, well, what's the big deal? We all have the movies anyway. Yeah, but this is, you know, we're in a world of streaming these days, and it's nice to have all movies there. And by the way, um, if a Harry Potter TV series ever happens, I think it will happen on HBO Max since they are owned by Warner Media. Yeah. It's Warner Brothers. And I mean, the only downside I would say is I did like the ability to kind of flip through the channels every once in a while and come across a Potter movie. And and I know you said NBC previously yeah. had the rights. That said, the only downside to that was the commercials. And right. you know, when you get into a lot of these stations, whether it was sci-fi or whatever the subsidiaries of NBC are, would play these movies, they would play the... Um, Editions that had the deleted scenes in them. So in some cases, you're talking about mm. movies being four hours or close to four hours in length with commercials slotted in there. And I, so I do like the ability, like you said, to be able to go to one place and just watch it. If you wanted to do a marathon yourself, you have the ability to start and stop it when you want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And by the way, they still will be airing on television. NBC still has the TV rights. Nice. In some other news, WizardingWorld.com continues to roll out their chapter-by-chapter reading of the first Harry Potter book. Chapter 5 was narrated by Simon Callow, Bonnie Wright, Ivana Lynch, and Chapter 6 was narrated by the Cursed Child cast. Chapter 7 was narrated by Olivia Coleman, and they had some cameos. Uh, Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye and Kate McKinnon, best known for her... Um, for being on SNL, they read the Sorting Hat lines. Jonathan <laughs> Van Ness did the song, and then Kate McKinnon did a part a little bit later. And those are really good. And then Chapter 8, a major star from India, Alia Bhatt, she read that chapter with a cameo from Alec Baldwin and his daughter. So now they're mm. starting to add these cameos as well. Yeah, I find it interesting, though, that they're they're not spreading it out a little bit more. Like, why not give an entire chapter to Ivana or Bonnie or, or even some of these other actors or actresses? I, I mean, the cameo idea is cool, but I, I would imagine that there's going to be a demand for this beyond just Sorcerer's Stone. So that's why I'm thinking that, it, you know, they may want to uh, give this a little bit more runway than they are. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I mean, I'm, they fit the whole cast of The Cursed Child into right. the one chapter by just 
getting everybody to take one character and announcing it. I mean, I, I saw that it happened. I haven't listened yet, but there's just so much, e- even in this con, like I'm, I'm just fascinated by this sprawling new content art form kind of thing they're going for. Like, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's, it's actually just hard to keep up with between this and the Ichabog. You know, if you can content spend overload, content overload, all of a sudden, from oh, zero, you people, zero to a million. I just think you it's, people, there's and so much going on. It's like, oh, before I turn, I turn around, I do a 360 degree turn, and all of a sudden, there's a new chapter being read by six or seven different actors I've heard of. By the time this episode is released, though, I, I happen to catch the view. My mom watches the view every day. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> And I believe Whoopi Goldberg is going to be reading a chapter next week. So that's a nice preview. She's a huge Potter fan, by the way. I'll be there for that. Mm. Love Whoopi. (laughs) (laughs) I guess my only comment on this is I'm surprised they're already using people who weren't in the Harry Potter movies. I was expecting more people from the Harry Potter movies, but maybe there will be towards the end of the book. All right. Also, just want to say thank you to MuggleCast listener Sonia for getting me a canvas print of J.K. Rowling's infamous Wormtaily tweet for my birthday. Uh, she sent this to the P.O. box and Eric got it to me. I just posted a picture in Slack uh, for you guys to see it, but it's also on our Patreon and we should probably post it on social media. Um, this is wonderful because, you know, it was a very dark, but in hindsight, great moment in my life. And now I can hang up this tweet and always be reminded of J.K. Rowling hating on my website. No, I think, didn't we rationalize this whole thing <laughs> on a previous yes, episode? Yeah. She she did it to actually she was drive people to your website. Right. right. The day it happened, though, it was traumatizing. Oh, yeah. oh yes. That's, I see. that's yeah. what I mean. So it yeah. brought back some memories, I see. Yes, yes. But no, I love it. Thank you, Sonia. I, I greatly appreciate Andrew, that. Andrew, what would you have done if she had responded to your depiction of the Ichabog with hashtag Wormtaily. <laughs> <laughs> she knew. It'd be time for another canvas. Yeah. Uh, I actually also have one thank you as well. And this was something that I got several weeks ago. So I apologize for not saying thank you before this. Mev sent me a stuffed goat. We all got one. Yeah. Oh, you did. <laughs> she said oh. all four of us. Got yeah, we all, we all we all goat mail. <laughs> yes, it's I think it's great. This company, yougoatmail.com. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Why does that exist? It's a great question. I wonder what else they sell besides stuffed goats. <laughs> yeah. I have mine next to my desk. Same. Thank you, Mev. That was very nice. I love it. Also, now's the time to support the show and help it grow because we've just announced the MuggleCast 15th anniversary t-shirt. As everybody should know by now, it features a new crest to celebrate our birthday, and it's available in two cuts and colors. Pledge by June 30th at patreon.com slash MuggleCast and remain a patron for at least three months to receive one for yourself. And a little bit of news. We have some people who still haven't filled out the form on Patreon, so please, if you are already a patron, make sure you do that. We'll post another link in the days ahead so you can easily access it because obviously we need your size and your cut and your color preference. And Slug Club members, please fill it out by June 8th because we are going to be sending out t-shirts to Slug Club members first. And everybody else who pledges at the Dumbledore's Army level, you will receive a shirt a few weeks later. So we're really excited to start getting these shirts out. We just wanted to prioritize Slug Club members so we can send out a uh, smaller wave 
at the beginning. So pledge at patreon.com slash mugglecast. Thank you very much. We really appreciate your support. And obviously, there's tons of other benefits there for you to enjoy as well. So if you're bored right now and maybe you want to support this podcast because you love it, head to Patreon, help us out, pledge at any level, whatever you can afford, we would deeply appreciate it. Okay, it's time for some muggle mail now, and we're going to start with a voicemail. Hi, Melissa here from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I was inspired by your conversations about head students and prefects last week to think more deeply about both James Potter and Ron Weasley. I think the fact that Ron was given the position of prefect is linked to the chapter Grot, which you will be talking about, specifically in relation to Ron's Quidditch win and confidence. Oftentimes, positions like prefect and head boy are opportunities for people to grow in their maturity and leadership in ways that might not be possible without those positions. Laura mentioned how sometimes anxiety is used as a tool for pushing students to grow academically, and I think being given a position of responsibility is a way teachers can push students to grow personally. I know Dumbledore says he didn't give Harry the position because Harry would already have a trying year, but maybe this isn't just an action against Harry, but rather one to help Ron mature in ways that Harry already has. We don't often see actions done for Ron's benefit, usually they're for Harry. I also wonder if this is why Dumbledore gave James Potter the head boy shit, even though James was a rule breaker and not a prefect. As a mentor, Dumbledore might have seen the potential of James to be a great leader, fighter, and defender as he was in the Order of the Phoenix, but did not see events in James' life that would push him to mature quickly enough to do so. That's a great point. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, definitely. All right. And we have uh, some muggle mail here. This one comes from Stacy. Stacy says, two thoughts based on the most recent episode. First, Harry overlooking all the other people he could have asked about James. He never considered sending a letter to Remus, which... Asking about his dad would have probably been okay by Umbridge's standards, and one of the first things Hagrid ever said to Harry was that he knew his parents. Not reaching out to Remus really shows just how much Sirius came to mean to him in such a short time, which makes the end of the book so much worse. Like Eric said, it almost seemed like J.K. Rowling was building the relationship up just to utterly destroy all of us readers. (laughs) Second, it never occurred to me before, but there's a very interesting connecting the future threads between McGonagall standing Mm. up for Harry in this chapter and Harry standing up for McGonagall at the end of Deathly Hallows when Amicus spits on her. For all the rule-breaking he did, both examples really speak to how much mutual respect they hold for each other. Good point, Stacey. Very good. I like that future connecting the threads. Yeah. (laughs) And probably just worth mentioning, this Muggle Mail had tied directly into our last episode, but the next few actually go back and talk about Snape's worst memory. Okay, I'll take uh, this next one. This one is from Melissa. To Pat's point, memories are very biased and conditional, and I think Snape's memories are incredibly biased and conditional. I think this does play a role in the books, even with the suspension of disbelief, because it seems Snape's memory leaves out so much about his own bullying actions toward both the Marauders and other students, as shown later on. So this memory really skews the relationship between Snape and the Marauders to a point where I think many Harry Potter fans think Marauders equal bad and Snape equals poor victim. In reality, Snape's own later memories show this is not the whole story. 
I don't think you can make a judgment on other people's behaviors from Snape's memories when he seems so unaware of his own actions and the impact they have on other people, plus his bias colors everything. I think this correlates to what Pat was saying about conditional memories. It is hard to judge the truth slash reality of a situation from one person's memory because of the prevalence of bias and the mind's tendency to fill in memories with false details to fit a person's worldview. I think that Snape likes to see himself as a victim to maybe make up for behavior he knows is cruel, trying to give himself an out through the Marauders' bullying, even though it seems he gave just as much back to them and other students at Hogwarts. The Marauders were certainly not right, but I just don't buy that they were as bad as Snape makes them out to be, or the movies, or many fans. Sirius and James are certainly shown to have matured into admirable adults, while no one in the books ever says the same for Snape, even Dumbledore, Melissa. I gotta say, I like this this bit at the end about maturing from, you know, teenagership, that, you know, her claim that nobody would say that Snape has matured. Mm. That that part I find interesting because I, I think that seems to be the truest where we see him actively bullying students. Um, yeah. Like, think of his relentless attack on Neville. I know he had a recent email about that too, but he's just so petty as a grown man in charge of teaching these children. His behavior at times is very, very uncalled for. In terms of how accurate Snape's memories were, though, I think that was confirmed because when Harry goes to meet with Sirius and Lupin, every detail matches. Yes. They even bring up, oh, was was James tossing the snitch? And that's a, that's a random thing for Remus or Sirius to bring up, but they do because it really happened. And I think that was the point. It was to tell the reader that this memory was accurate. Yeah. Yeah. The Pensieve presents memories in an unbiased way. If you only saw Snape's worst memory, you'd be like, oh, Snape, poor victim. But the pensive makes it whole, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, that's that's the magic of the pensive. I, I thought of, of two things here. One is that, you know, if a memory was to have bias or try to be altered, we see what happens in, in Half-Blood Prince, right, with Slughorn's memory. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There's a certain something about it that just seems a little bit off. Like a haziness. Uh, but I, yeah. I, I do like the point that Melissa makes though about Snape never fully maturing the way that let's say James does, because Sirius still has a bit of growing up to do himself as well. Right. But Snape just hasn't seemed to be able to rid himself of the bitterness, to your point, Eric. We talk about Sirius being kind of emotionally stunted and you know, we attribute that to the fact that he spent his entire young adult life post Hogwarts in Azkaban. And Mm -hmm. yes, Snape did not suffer this same fate, but in a lot of ways, Snape has been in a prison of his own making. Mm. So I think that that also stunted somebody who might have otherwise been a more, um, you know, positive contributor to society. And speaking of Azkaban, uh, this next email from Matt starts off talking about that. He says, I think a big part of Sirius's resentment towards Snape stems from the fact that he knows that Snape was an actual Death Eater who walked free. Sirius does not know the full circumstances regarding Snape switching sides, 
but it must be infuriating for him to see people like Snape, Karkaroff, and Lucius Malfoy enjoy freedom while he rotted away in Azkaban for something he didn't do. I know you guys talked about how Harry's not very much like James, but I'm not so sure. Harry has no problem with the twins nearly killing Montague by shoving him in the vanishing cabinet. <laughs> he also enjoys hexing people for fun in Half-Blood Prince. He practices the leglock curse on Filch, and he tries out a curse on Goyle to make his toenails grow at an alarming rate. Harry did not express any sympathy for Malfoy when fake Moody turned him into a ferret and bounced him up and down. We know that Lily and Snape had been friends, so that changes my perception of her a bit, too. If Snape had been dangling Sirius or Remus upside down, you bet you're behind that James would come to their defense. If we saw a scene like this with zero context to James's friendship with Sirius or Remus, we would be applauding James as a good Samaritan as well. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I think the point Matt is making is it's all about context, right? And it's all about the perception of what's happening in front of us and and whose eyes we're really seeing it through. Mm -hmm. um, but also the first paragraph I thought was very interesting about how Sirius probably does have a level of resentment deep down for a number of these Death Eaters that are just walking free while, while he is yeah. paying for something that he didn't do. That's a good point. For sure. In terms of Harry acting out, though, I mean, nobody's perfect, so... <laughs> I agree there's some of James and Harry, but I still wouldn't compare them too closely. Yeah, the the ferret example, I just have a hard time there because I think that they're they're rivals, right? But yeah. they they never really get to the point Harry and Draco outside of that Sectumsempra scene where they're physically really doing damage to each other. Right. And mm -hmm. I think he's just looking at that as a very funny moment where Malfoy finally just gets a little bit of what's coming to him. And I'm sure we all have examples ourselves where we've been in similar situations where we've, you know, seen something happen to somebody where, you know, obviously not serious, but, you know, we're like, oh, that person finally got theirs a little bit. Well, mm -hmm. and, and, and with the ferret scene, it's a teacher doing that to Draco. And it's like, if you uh, are scolded, if your rival at school is scolded by the teacher, you're probably going to gloat a little bit. I think that is normal. Totally. Remember, Harry's 15. This final email today is from World's Oddest Man. <laughs> hmm. Hi, MuggleCast. I was listening to episode 465, and I was thinking about the point that was brought up regarding the Marauders striking similarity to Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle in the chapter discussion of Snape's worst memory. Specifically, with James and Draco's actions being eerily similar, I found it odd that Snape didn't make this connection between them while Harry did. My hypothesis is that Harry had love in his life and Snape didn't. Even though both had miserable childhoods, when they got to Hogwarts, their experiences vastly differ. Harry was greeted with open arms and close friends that helped to give him perspective. There is love and caring in the world when you step out of the shadow of the Dursleys. Snape, conversely, found that the pain from his home life continued at Hogwarts through bullying from the Marauders and the fact that he didn't have the love and support around him like Harry. The only evidence we have of anyone caring about Snape at all was Lily, and eventually he unwillingly pushed her away into the arms of his bully and eventually to their deaths. The lack of love and the bullying trauma have combined to keep Snape stuck in a juvenile, black-and-white mindset. Bully or be bullied. 
This allows him to excuse Draco's antics as it fits his worldview as opposed to Harry, who can see the more nuanced connection between his father and Draco. Upon reflection, I feel the opposite viewpoints of Harry and Snape in this moment is where the theme of the series that Rowling sets up really shines through as a cautionary tale. Love is the most powerful force in the world, and without it, we are not whole. Well, world's oddest man, you are also the world's greatest emailer because (laughs) I think this was a great point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree. See, the thing, though, with Snape is that I don't think he cares like he sees so much of james and harry that it doesn't matter to him what malfoy crab and goyle do he's relishing in the fact that they're bullying harry and his friends all right well before we get to chapter by chapter me undies is back to sponsor this week's episode of MuggleCast, makers of the most comfortable and surprising underwear and loungewear you know how Dobby gets a piece of clothing and he's so happy it seems like he'll never take it off? That'll be you with MeUndies. They're so darn comfortable, you'll never want to take them off. Laura and I have been longtime fans of MeUndies. What immediately grabs your attention is all their adventurous prints. You can get underwear designs with all kinds of fun prints on them, which, of course, are the ones I love to order. Or you can go for simple or bold single colors. Their underwear, shirts, and lounge pants have an incredible feel that I promise you haven't experienced before. I like the way, Laura, you describe them. It feels like you're sitting in a cloud. Yes. <laughs> and especially during quarantine, it's, it's good to be in a comfy <laughs> cloud. And this is one of those things where once you try it, you think to yourself, where have they been all my life? It's a game changer. What's also cool about MeUndies is their membership program. You can build your own packs or you can buy matching pairs for you and a friend or loved one. Get new pairs delivered automatically and at a discounted price. MeUndies has a great offer for our listeners. For any first-time purchasers, you get 15% off and free shipping. This is a no-brainer, especially because they have a 100% satisfaction guarantee. You've got nothing to lose. Being stuck in the house right now, you probably want to freshen up your day-to-day life. MeUndies are a great way to do that, and your life is about to get a whole lot more comfortable. I've been speaking mostly about their underwear today, but I also recently got their lounge pants, and oh my god, they're silky smooth, and they're unlike anything I've worn before. They are perfect for quarantine life. To get your 15% off your first order, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash MuggleCast. That's MeUndies.com slash MuggleCast, and by supporting our sponsor, you will also be supporting the show, so thank you very much, and enjoy your comfortable new underwear and loungewear. Now I'm just imagining Dobby wearing a pair of MeUndies with, like, a dumpling pattern on them, (laughs) but on his head, right? Like, he would wear it as a hat. Right. (laughs) He would never take them off. I promise you. We can let Jewel know and that'll be on our uh, social media. That'll be the Photoshop this week. week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's time now for chapter by chapter. And this week we are discussing Order of the Phoenix chapter 30. Grop. Grop. And we'll start with our seven word summary. I won't start with Harry. I won't start with Harry. Hagrid. (laughs) Reveals. Another. Giant. Secret. Mistake. Grop. (laughs) (laughs) Comma, grop. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, is is grop a mistake, though? (laughs) Well, bringing him to Hogwarts is. Yeah. I wanted to start off because, and I shared this with Andrew a couple days ago, 
uh, we got an email and I forget who the, the listener was who sent it in. And then I tried responding to them and, and their email didn't work. So who knows if they're really a person or not um, <laughs> saying that. I, and, and I quote, um, we did a disservice in the last chapter by not really discussing Fred and George's great escape from Hogwarts. Now, I don't know <laughs> if I would call it a disservice, but we can talk a little bit more about it here at the top of the chapter, just given you know how much of a fallout there is from, from what happens at the end of, of, of the previous chapter. Um, he put this time into a response and he couldn't even get it to, to the everyone. I, we, it's not just something we like to say on the show that we respond to all the emails. We do. Uh, yeah. And this is a perfect example, but uh, let's talk about our disservice uh, to to Fred and George. Uh, yeah, I, 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 it's a huge moment of defiance. There's no question about it. The, the, even the things that they say to Umbridge, I don't think Harry would ever fathom of saying to her face. Right, but they feel invincible, and I think that's that's why they do it. And of course, they have this ego about them that we always see. Mm -hmm. um but yeah it, it did take a lot of guts and i think it'll probably go down in in the school's history as as one of the um well like it said i think by jk rowling they've reached legendary status <laughs> <laughs> they completely defied the rules uh they were protesting against umbridge replacing dumbledore and all the other things that umbridge has done and they had no shame about it and they pulled it off spectacularly the yeah. funny part is, as as fantastic as their exit was, and I don't think you'll find anyone on this panel that disagrees, it was a, a wonderful exit of theirs. Uh, the eyewitness accounts only get stranger over the next week of Hogwarts history. Um, and, I, and I love that sort of J.K. Rowling's touching on how unreliable memory is or how people tend to embellish when they're excited so that the official record or the official account, you know, orally told between students years from now will probably involve things like the twins dive bombing Umbridge and, and things like that, which they didn't do. Like their words were strong, but they kept it real, you know, tight and just kind of uh, did what did as much as they did. But but people are going to embellish anyway. True. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we get the great giver hell from us peeves line at the end of that chapter and and seemingly a, a level of respect is is established if it didn't already exist between peeves and the weasley twins though i think they probably got along pretty well over their time at hogwarts they're they're both probably all about the same thing which is creating mischief mm -hmm. yeah i think there would have been a level of mutual respect there one of uh, the former MuggleCast co-hosts, Matt, um, was very inspired by that <laughs> giver hell from us peeves. That was his AIM screen name <laughs> that's oh, right. back that's in the day. Right. Give her hell, peeves. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and what I love from this chapter is that the teachers are also on Peeves' side. Uh, McGonagall, Harry could swear, yeah. hears uh, telling Peeves that the chandelier unscrews the other direction than what mm -hmm. he's trying. I'm just like, man, McGonagall is 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 into some property damage here <laughs> mcgonagall's like righty tidy lefty lucy <laughs> <laughs> she just never walks away from a teachable moment she wants to <laughs> instruct everyone yeah uh, totally and and now the school is really in open rebellion it's 
as you said, the professors are, are not looking, or are, I should say they're looking the other way completely when things are going on, whether it's the McGonagall moment you just mentioned, the swamp that the Weasley twins created, it still exists. And it really requires that that section of Hogwarts be completely, you know, locked off. Um, I think it's mentioned Filch has to actually ferry students across the swamp yeah. in order for them to get from one side to the next. And, and, we assume that professors like McGonagall, Flitwick, others could easily remedy the situation, but they're choosing not to. They're choosing to let it just play itself out. They're, they're almost like, I know the school's in rebellion, but like the professors are in rebellion here too against Umbridge. Right. Yeah. Well, they also know that she's too proud to ask them for help. So if mm-hmm. she's not willing to ask, then why would they be willing to do anything? Right. And and I think even Flitwick has a line in a previous chapter. It's when the Weasley twins set off the fireworks and, and he mentions, oh, I, I could have taken care of it, but I didn't know if I was allowed to. So, you know, it's <laughs> one of those point. really great moments um, from from these different professors and just kind of seeing how they're reacting. And, and yeah, Peeves has been given like free reign, not that he didn't have it before, but <laughs> nobody is is really standing in his way of of creating just absolute chaos. Um, doesn't doesn't he like lock Mrs. Norris in a suit of armor somewhere? Oh, poor kitty. Well, that's mean. That's animal abuse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of things we could touch on here. Um, but yeah, the, well, the t- good. How about this Niffler though? So. You know, there's this theory that it was Hagrid who put the Niffler in Umbridge's office. And I actually kind of think that McGonagall being up to a little mischief herself implies that it really was Hagrid who put the Niffler in Umbridge's office. Hagrid denies it. And this is something that he confides in the kids in in Harry and Hermione when they're in the uh, in the woods on the way or to or from Grop that he's going to be sacked because of it. Like Umbridge really thinks it's him. And if it, if it wasn't him, I really want to know who it was because presumably it's difficult to come across a Niffler, such a destructive, uh, albeit small beast who has like access to a Niffler and who would think to put them or one in Umbridge's office besides Hagrid. Newt. Newt? <laughs> yeah, Newt like came did, back did, to did, troll did, Umbridge. Did Newt Scamander come in town? Like, are people writing him going, she's crazy, you gotta help? That's kind of the thing. You would think it wasn't a student, because if a student had been holding on to a Niffler, that Niffler would have been running around the school all the time anyway. Yeah. So I think it had to be somebody who didn't live in the school. It's a vicious Niffler, too, because it's like gnawing at her rings on her <laughs> fingers, too. It's, it's not a nice Niffler like Newt has. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think all Nifflers would probably behave that same way if introduced to so many chintzy, shiny objects that that Umbridge has. But, you know, I, I don't feel a lick bad for her, but it is just so, I guess, exciting to see the ways in which uh, like this whole thing is ruminations on uh, power and where power comes from. And if Umbridge does not have the support of her own teaching staff, uh, then she is going to suffer and she really hasn't earned the respect or the, I guess, loyalty of the staff. She's really isolated herself and, you know, she's appointing students to uphold her rules. But all of the teachers are just like, 
at this point, you've reached the point of no return here, and we are not going to submit to your authority. I think really firing Dumbledore was probably the linchpin there. Yeah, I was going to say you really get a sense for what the school looks like when Dumbledore is not there, or you just have incompetent leadership. And that's what exists with Umbridge being in charge. She wants to enforce her way of doing things, but especially once the Weasley twins do what they do at the end of the last chapter, it inspires, it encourages these other students and, and the staff to act this way now. They, if, if the Weasley twins can do it, then so can we. And, <laughs> and we're not going, and we're, we far outweigh in numbers Umbridge and her inquisitorial squad. One thing I wanted to touch on, with, I know we mentioned Filch kind of helping these students across the swamp area. Um, the word that's actually used in the US edition, and Eric, you pointed it out here, is punting. And <laughs> all of us here in the US are familiar with American football. And when you think of punting, you think of kicking. So yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised that this word wasn't changed at all in in the US edition because the thought it comes to mind because first it's like Filch has a horse whip. Yeah. That that's what's first mentioned. You know, so it's like, oh, I didn't know he was into S and M. And then now he's <laughs> kicking students across it it sounds like anyway, across yeah. this swamp. And yeah. you're just thinking to yourself, wait, what? This, What's going this on gets here? me every time. It was only on this reread that I'm like, okay, I have to finally figure out what the hell bunting is. Yeah. Um, because it just, it reads so funnily. The Harry Potter translators, man, like the British to English translators, they were MIA this whole book. And Well, for- but wait a second. Maybe the American editor thought that punting meant kicking here. It's because possible. it's Filch. So yeah, of course Filch would kick the kid. I'm sure maybe. they knew. Also, it's just, we're not, we're not infants over here, we don't need to have the books completely Americanized. I yes, disagree, Laura. I agree. No, my opinion on Eric, this. Eric, you're just embarrassing yourself when you say that. Uh, we can't have our hands held. I need my hands held. <laughs> Be I cultured. No, I agree, Laura. But <laughs> my point being is if they were going to make other changes like they did, then this would be one example where I think it would make sense to change the word just so that. Yeah, if a punt is a small boat, it's you. You. Sh- it's pretty clear that it's dereliction of duty. You should write boating. He's boating them across. He's very. So I apologize to our UK listeners uh, in advance, uh, but <laughs> just touching on a few other things uh, with the school being an open rebellion. The Inquisitorial Squad is also under attack. Warrington ends up being completely disfigured. Pansy Parkinson has grown antlers, and students on the whole. They're putting Fred and George's skiving snack boxes to use, and they're claiming that they have what is called umbridge-itis. And saying that to her. And yeah, right? saying it to her face. That takes... <laughs> Which yeah. I think is a fast track to detention. I don't know why you would have the guts to say that to her. I mean, yeah, if it's just you, that would be nuts. It would be crazy. Yeah. But she ends up putting four successive classes in detention, it says. It's just so many... The uh the what's the word delinquent students that uh she just can't it can't be helped no it can't but I think it's great and I love the fact that they're so willing to say it to her face. <laughs> One other thing that happens in uh, this chapter that that we get a payoff for finally is that Harry comes clean about his 
Triwizard Tournament winnings and that he gave them to Fred and George. And, and this all comes about because Ron is saying that his mom is going to blame him for the fact that his brothers pieced out of Hogwarts early. And, and this was, this was, you know, for Ron, he really feels like he's going to get the blame here. And I wondered why, why does he feel that he's responsible for Fred and George? He's came to school after them and <laughs> brothers, they stick together. They might help each other out at the school. And he's thinking Molly was hoping that he would try to straighten out Fred and George. I don't know. Well, and I think he's also thinking she probably had higher expectations of him because he's a prefect. Right. 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 Yeah, there's a weird transference going on where it seems like Molly expects Ron to behave more like Percy um, than like Fred and George, that Ron has always been expected to kind of be a little bit more in line. But he's just that's just not his nature, I don't think. I do think, though, that it could have just been an opportunity for J.K. Rowling to lead into the reveal of of Harry providing the funds for the Weasley twins because you know it it seems like it's been building up for some time now right there's been mm-hmm. questions over the course of you know since the end of Goblet of Fire how did Fred and George get the resources to be able to do all this testing and then now they're opening a shop up in Diagon Alley and uh Hermione seems surprised and then like really like after harry like why did you give him the the money like how like i don't understand why she's so upset here um or or looks to kind of give harry a hard time because they're in the prank business and he's bankrolling their prank business this is like everything she hates and harry's funding it i i think she still has Breaking the rules doesn't come easy to her or natural at all. And I think she still has a lot of anxiety about uh, doing things a little less by the book. Well, also, it was a lot of money. Yeah. Like, what, 700 galleons? A thousand. Oh, a thousand. Yeah. So even even more. So I think she's just thinking of it from the perspective of like, it, I, I guess it would be something along the lines of like, if... I loaned one of you $100,000, not that I have $100,000, so that you could go off and like open a joke shop. I think my own mother would be like, what (laughs) are you doing? (laughs) But Harry already has tons of money. If you had a million dollars and you lent me $100,000, I would be like, can I have more money? No, I would be like, (laughs) well, okay, that makes sense because you have plenty of money. Never going to happen. Despair. <laughs> broke for life. Well, and it, it wasn't like it was wasn't well thought through on Harry's part because doesn't he make sure that the twins buy something for Ron as well at the end of Goblet oh, of Fire? Oh yeah, new dress robes. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I just think that Fred and George have been brothers to Harry, and in many ways, uh, I would say more so than they've been brothers to Ron, at least from what we've read in in this series and Mm. and the fact that there's that connection i harry just felt like he was investing in their future and and it was clear that their future was not going to be in some sort of academic field it it was going to be in the creation of of this type of uh fun joke related stuff and i love how it finally comes out because hermione and ron are initially speculating in front of harry 
much worse scenarios, right? Like maybe they're in with Mendungus on the illegal item trade and, and, and Harry, who's been re- really struggling with coming clean about this from, as you say, at least the beginning of this book, um, is finally like, you know, okay, it's at the point where it's getting so much worse that they don't know uh, what is happening. The speculation is going rampant. I should just tell them. And so it's almost to clear their name that that Harry reveals that he gave the money to Fred and George. He doesn't want them being thought of as criminals because they're not criminals. Mm. I thought that was a very good character moment for Harry to finally suss up. I think Harry is just really impressed by what the twins have done and he wants to see them thrive. So he decided to fund their business. And like I said, like a year or two ago, I wish he just took a stake in the business. I wish he had ownership. (laughs) You know, I wish this was an episode of Shark Tank and he took like 10% of the business for giving them uh, all these galleons. Well, he does get everything he wants for free, right? Uh, as the he Harry, should. Yeah, Harry I'd rather discount. Still yeah. have a percentage, a cut. <laughs> but <laughs> maybe uh, Albus Severus gets an internship there in Cursed Child. Oh, there you too. go. Well, yeah, somebody has to fill Fred's position. Oh. So. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of the feel-good moments of the series, and and Ron like lights up because he's like, "Great, now I'm not in trouble." <laughs> <laughs> he asks Harry for permission. Can I tell Mom that you did? Please let me pass the blame off. (laughs) Next year, like Harry's Christmas sweater is going to have like a big tear in the middle of it because uh, (laughs) Molly's pissed off. But but I think that's the best possible scenario, too, because, you know, Molly's not going to get mad at at Harry. Right. Mm -hmm. I think if she sees or hears that Harry did something, the default is to focus on the merits. Because at first you're like, why the heck would he? T- oh, well, you know, he did help them out. He's always been a brother to them. So it, this is not the only thing that Hermione is bothering Harry about. The other thing is occlumency. And Harry is is struggling to clear his mind every night before bed. And uh, I thought we could talk a little bit about if there's something comparable to that in the real world. And And I thought about meditation. And I know... You know, clearing your mind, meditating has become such a big thing today, particularly with everything that all of us are going through with, you know, the uh, the hiatus, the coronavirus. It's tough, mm-hmm. and I think the expectation that a fifteen year old can just clear everything out of his mind with everything that Harry has going on right now, it's a big expectation. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many others here meditate and use, you know, all the apps that are out there. But I just thought we could kind of speak a little bit from our own experiences and how challenging it is to actually do that. Yeah. Especially when Mm -hmm. you've had a long day or maybe you're anticipating the next day. I mean, there's always crazy stuff happening at Hogwarts. So like, how can you possibly think, (laughs) go to bed knowing that tomorrow will be um, sort of peaceful at all? Right. It's also just uh, like Micah was saying, it's just really hard in general to clear your mind. It's something that like you have to learn how to meditate. Um, The first time that you sit down to do it, you're not going to do it right. (laughs) And also the other problem is that Harry doesn't really want to. He wants to get through Mm -hmm. that door at the end of the hall. Yeah. See, honestly... His th- their first mistake is he should be doing this in the morning at the start of his day, uh-huh. <laughs> because if you try to do if you try to clear your mind at the end of a full day, it's going to be a lot harder. But you can clear your mind in the morning. 
That way you're going into the day relaxed, Mm -hmm. (laughs) fully meditated. (laughs) And then when you try to clear it at night, it's maybe a little bit easier. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And yeah, Andrew, what you said about like he now has this this goal deep within him, whether that's him personally wanting to figure out what the Hall of Prophecy is now that he has actually gotten through the door or it's mm-hmm. Voldemort wanting to snatch the prophecy down from wherever it's, you know, being housed right now. Like it, it, we've all had I mean, I know I've had dreams where it's like you wake up in the middle and you're like, "Damn, I wanted that to continue. Where was it going?" And I think it's the same thing for Harry. Like he wants answers and and when he has this eagerness within him, it's hard to to say, "Hey, clear that from your mind and don't think about it." Yeah. I, I yeah. think Hermione has just some unfair expectations because I'm not sure she's ever tried this out herself. Like what she's oh. asking of Harry to do. Like, let's think about it that way too. I mean, but, the stakes are just so high. She doesn't, she doesn't have to practice because Voldemort's not trying to get into her mind. I think it just, it is a shame seeing how many opportunities Harry had to shape up uh, considering he falls hook, line and sinker for Voldemort's um, fake imagery when in a couple chapters time. Yeah. Yeah, we we also get a little bit of a a tiff between Harry and Ron after the, you know this conversation about occlumency. Ron mentions to Hermione that Harry was talking in his sleep again oh. and Harry gets really pissed off at Ron for that. <laughs> um I mean, Ron's just trying to help. I mean, he's got a big yeah. quidditch match coming up. He's thinking about how he's going to try and save the day and, or just keep out the other team from scoring about a hundred goals on him. So, you know, he's got a lot <laughs> happening, mm-hmm. but Ron uh, is the secret MVP of this chapter. I he is because yeah. he continues to have this uncanny ability to protect the future. And uh, he mentions that if Montague doesn't recover before Slytherin plays Hufflepuff, we might be in with a chance for winning the cup. And uh, mm. that's exactly what happens. So yeah. Ron is the long descendant of Sybil Trelawney, <laughs> secret fourth cousin removed. Yeah, invest in this too, Harry. Yeah, I mean, he he does it without Harry and Hermione's support, and and given that awful comment that Harry made that he was dreaming about Ron almost catching the quaffle just a bit further, just a bit for like that was just so <laughs> that was such a low blow for for Harry to say that I'm surprised Ron's ego recovers enough to even do anything good at Quidditch. Well, he knows he sucks. So, I I mean, yeah. that's probably a terrible thing to say, but I think he knows he's not good deep down. But I, I, it, you're right. It, that comment does seem to kind of just brush over Ron a little bit. Yeah. But, I mean, he is at the point where he's accepted that he's not good, and he says there's nowhere to go but up. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's good attitude for Ron to adapt in this late hour. Yeah. Well, and also, I think Hermione raises a really good point that he might be doing better because Fred and George aren't there. Yeah. And Fred and George have historically given him a really hard time about this. Yeah. There's there's that lack of pressure that that would otherwise be present. So I think that's a that's a really good point. Uh, but things play out the way they need to. And, and Gryffindor is in a position to win the, the Quidditch Cup. And uh, we don't see any of the match really uh, outside of some initial like introductions and, and opening plays because Hagrid shows up 
and wants to take Harry and Hermione on a secret mission. They can't even watch a Quidditch game in peace. This, this is no. why Harry can't sleep at night and clear his head. <laughs> this was clever um, for was Hagrid. It? Yeah, this this was... I, I don't support anything Hagrid is doing in this chapter, except I think it's clever to pull them out during a game because the entire school is distracted and people don't seem to notice them leaving. But how is that possible? Because <laughs> number Hagrid one, is huge. Yeah, Hagrid is huge. He also looks like he, you know, went 12 rounds in a MMA match. <laughs> and he's like trying to get his way through the crowd. It's noted just how big he is and and like he's pushing students out of the way to to make his way over to Harry and Hermione in the first place. I know we have to suspend belief with all this, but it it just seems odd to me that nobody notices that they disappear. And the fact that Umbridge wouldn't have Harry and Hermione and Ron under all watch yeah. all the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, she knows where Ron is, but yeah, Harry and Hermione for sure should be watched. And I think she would keep an extra eye on Harry because he may be mad that he can't play, so he may rebel in some way. Well, and if she's thinking of sacking Hagrid, wouldn't she be keeping an eye on him too? Right, waiting for an excuse to fire yeah. him. Yeah. And just to illustrate this, earlier on in this book, I believe it was, it's observed that Hagrid has feet the size of baby dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> and she says like hands the size of trash can lids. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll be clear, like the 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 children that Hagrid flattens against the seats as he goes to get Harry and Hermione, they notice him. But for the most part, he does seem to be able to he gets them out. I mean, they're gone for hours. And so he yeah, he chose the right moment. Like there is some stroke of genius in, in Hagrid's planning here because it ends up working out for him. I just think it's dumb luck, honestly. Like I don't <laughs> think there's any strategy here. I, mm. I you know, there there's a huge risk, right? Like they just happen to walk out of the forest at the time that the the match is ending and they're in complete disarray. Like it's mentioned just like how they look. I I don't know how they're able to blend in with the other students because their robes are ripped, their hair is messed up, they get scratches all over their face, they're bleeding. They look like Hagrid. <laughs> so I'm I'm actually surprised that this, at least for right now, goes off without a hitch. Right. Well, everybody's just so shocked that Gryffindor won. <laughs> they don't even notice. Wanted to talk a little bit about uh, connecting the threads, and Laura, I'll let you uh, take it, but Hagrid enjoys keeping dangerous things in the forest. This is not the first time that he's done this. No. <laughs> and he also enjoys uh, uh, encountering dangerous things in the forest. Something that I thought was really interesting was looking at their interactions with centaurs in this chapter versus their interactions with centaurs towards the end of Philosopher's slash Sorcerer's Stone Um you know, at that point in the first book, the centaurs don't really seem to mind that Harry and Hagrid are in the forest. Um, they sort of ignore them more than anything else. They don't directly answer any questions that Hagrid's asking. They're more concerned with stargazing, whereas in this chapter, their reaction is decidedly uh, a bit violent. Uh, And they communicate to Hagrid, like, listen, you're not welcome here anymore. 
we were killing Ferenz and you stopped us from killing him. He is a traitor. And I found that whole mentality really interesting because they were trying to kill Ferenz because they saw him as going into servitude to humans. And I thought it'd be interesting to look into a little bit of background on centaurs to see where that mentality might come from. Um, So I looked it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And according to that, um, centaurs were descended from this Greek character named Ixion, who was allowed into Olympus by Zeus. And Ixion tried to seduce Zeus's wife, Hera. Zeus then created like a cloud fake version of Hera. I I imagine this like as the cartoon Hercules, by the way. <laughs> like that's how I'm seeing Mostly, it. Mostly, yes. Um, yeah, I would agree. It's funny. I just, well, you said Hercules. I saw like The Rock apparently did a version of that movie not that oh, long really? ago. It was on TV the other day. Yeah. Sorry. There's nothing else to do in quarantine. Did you watch this after The View or before The View? <laughs> I actually was switching back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> Got to get both so, in, you know. <laughs> so Ixion and this like fake cloud Hera ended up um, giving like fa- he ended up fathering a child Centaurus who was he was deformed. And because of his deformity, he was banished um, to Mount Pelion, where he fathered the centaurs by the mares that lived there. And that that to me kind of it was interesting because you see sort of the beginning of their legacy as a race being based on their banishment. And you see in the Potter books that the centaurs really do try to keep to themselves. So I don't know if Rowling's intention was to say that like this Greek myth is sort of like the source for the centaurs in her books as well. But I think that she was carrying over the theme of like centaurs kind of like choosing to live in exile and being very insular and not wanting anything to do with outside communities because they don't have a choice. Hmm. Interesting character building because the centaurs as a tribe, you can't really showcase how tribal they are or how much they keep to themselves unless you have somebody from their ranks fall out like with friends and 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 it, it always just strikes me how brutal their punishment is for friends that they were going to kill him and and how just imposing uh they are on hagrid and his students here like mm. they it's very serious and i think it's so interesting that this was one of the subplots written you know that uh, found its way into this book because it does provide i think crucial insight into what, who they are as a race. Right. Mm. And then from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them on Centaurs, um, Newt Scamander wrote, being intelligent and capable of speech, it should not, strictly speaking, be termed a beast, but by its own request, it has been classified as such by the Ministry of Magic. Mm-hmm. And during during the foreword of that book, it's clarified that this is because they did not want the same classification as vampires and hags, which mm. is what they would have had had they been classified as a quote unquote being. Um, so they don't want anything to do with magical governance. They don't want anything to do with the ministry. They just want to 
live their life in isolation in the forest. Well, at least the centaurs we see. Um, But they're not interested in having any kind of interaction with humans at all. Um, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them also clarifies that they kind of view wizards and muggles as two sides of the same coin. They're very suspicious of all of them. So they don't feel a particular inclination towards one group over the other. Yeah, they're they're Mm. definitely territorial and and they feel protective of the forest as a whole. And and certainly that Hagrid is invading their space. And, (laughs) you know, forest is a big place. But at the same time, I think he's also bringing a lot of risk into that forest. And and if you take the the sort of proud nature of the centaurs aside, you'd have to imagine that bringing a giant into the forest could be a very big threat to the centaurs. Who knows what Grop may think? Dinner yeah. time, right? Like yeah. <laughs> he, he could right. look at them as an afternoon snack for all we know. <laughs> right. Or you, you, it's also worth asking: How does introducing this giant upset the ecosystem? Oh, right. in the forest horribly, horribly. Yeah. like it only takes grop a couple of seconds to rip up entire trees that have been growing there for 40 or 50 years or 150 yeah, years, probably you know? longer yeah. yeah 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 so it's absolutely just the most disruptive and for somebody like the centaurs who are only focused on events in the like the big picture and like decades from now and that kind of thing like they're so their their pace is so slow compared to grop this chaotic element who is have really having to keep them on their feet uh, or on their hooves, as it were, every <laughs> every day, every second of every day. And I don't um, resent or think it's wrong for the centaurs to be a little bristly, uh, you know, towards yeah. Hagrid for this. This is extremely disruptive. Harry even notes it when they're walking into the forest. He notes the distinct lack of creatures. He's like, usually we would have seen something by now, but yeah. there's nothing. Yeah. Well, they were all right. at the Quidditch match. That was why. Sports. Oh, they, they <laughs> all were the watching. creatures went to the Quidditch yeah, match. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who do you think? Um, but I, I also thought it was interesting, too, because in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, it notes that centaurs have a pretty high um, danger rating. Like, they're rated with Xs. Um, and so centaurs get four Xs. Mm. And... That, that means that they're very dangerous to humans and that only highly skilled wizards should be interacting with them, which Hagrid is <laughs> <laughs> <know>. not. It's <laughs> not. Um, but there is a footnote that says centaurs are only rated dangerously because they need to be treated with respect. And the second that you don't treat them with respect, they're going to F you up. Well, right? Like hypocrites. Yeah, and yes, exactly. So that I thought was so cool because here we are in Order of the Phoenix. And the last time we've interacted with an animal like this with Hagrid was in Prisoner of Azkaban with Buckbeak. Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely interesting. And then you look ahead and I know events have to play themselves out throughout the rest of Order of the Phoenix. But despite this conversation that happens between Hagrid and, and the centaurs, at the end of Half-Blood Prince, you do see them pay tribute to Dumbledore. And in Deathly Hallows, you do see them join the battle. So I I just find it like what changed? Like what what kind of philosophical change happened? And I know it, reintroducing friends plays a role, but I just find that 
the way that it plays itself out to be very interesting. They want to pay their respects to a great wizard, I think, um, who did care for them. And in terms of book seven, they wanted to save the world, <laughs> I guess. I mean, Voldemort taking over would not have been good for them either. So. Right, right. If they, if they if they can stump, if they can legally or for a good cause stump other people to death, they're going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they're they've shown that they're very much more interested in the bigger picture. Um, so like yeah. from the you know from book one, they're not really concerned about Hagrid's you know sort of trivial unicorn problem. They're like, hey, Mars is bright tonight. I don't know if you've noticed, but that's not a good thing. <laughs> Um, and so when you get to the idea of the second wizarding war, that is something that's a bigger picture thing. And like Andrew was saying, it's not good for anybody if mm-hmm. Voldemort wins. Yeah. yeah. And, so and I think that's why they get involved ultimately. Mm-hmm. And it's also important to note that there are differences among the centaurs, just like there are amongst wizards, right? You have Ferenz, obviously, who is a friendly um, you have on the other side, you have Magorian, you have Bane, you have others who are, you know, I wouldn't say they're they're necessarily bad or evil, but, you know, they certainly strike a different tone with, with Hagrid than somebody like Ferenz would. All right, let's talk a little bit about Hagrid's decision making. This whole situation... Eric, I, if you want to defend him, please go ahead. But No, that's the just, last thing I want to do. This is indefensible. <laughs> He's dragging two teenagers into the forest to make nice with a fully grown giant. I, you know, this is, has danger written all over it. There's just so many things here, but, but Hagrid just doesn't get it. And, and I know this is his brother (laughs) and he wants to take care of his brother and do the right thing. And there's something to be said for that, but family man gotta look yeah, he's out he's a he's a family man and uh it just put i would say the introduction itself is fine but putting the responsibility on harry and hermione and even ron to take care of grop to come visit him in the forest it's awful it's like, completely dude, awful you do it if you're getting kicked out Right, you can hang out in the forest well, all you want. Well, oh no, yeah, he can't. He can't because the centaurs would be pissed. But what he should do is <laughs> kidnap Harry and Hermione and keep the kids with him and Grop in the forest. That way, the centaurs won't kill Hagrid because, as we hear later in this chapter, um, they they don't want to kill the kids because they were. He innocent. should just get a couple of like like dummies that he can pass <laughs> off like for kids yeah or babies he can just cradle some babies grow up in hagrid parenting two newborns beautiful well i mean hagrid brought him all the way back from eastern europe why couldn't he take him wherever the heck it is he's going yeah that's hagrid... a good point too yeah he's very hidden in the forest it's hard to justify hagrid's logical thinking like also how did he get him across the water Ge- geographically? Like if he's coming from Eastern Europe. Oh, how did he get him to Scotland? Yeah. On a boat. I, I guess. <laughs> they, oh, they took the channel. That's they, what the sunk channel. that ship in uh, in Crimes of Grindelwald. There were too many giants stowed away on the, <laughs> below deck. <laughs> no, yeah. that is a very good question. 
they must have snuck on a boat, I guess. But but what is Hagrid thinking? He just he's like, well, Grop is now at he basically rehoused Grop in the forest. He's he just said, this is a great place for you. He did not obtain the consent of any other living creature in the forest. Now he's putting Harry and Hermione's lives at risk by having them even venture into the forest multiple times to keep him company. I mean, nobody can argue his heart's not in the right place, but this is one instance where Hagrid's brains should have told him not to ask this of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. I like that you brought up, he didn't ask anybody in the forest if they were going to be cool with this, but Grop doesn't want to be there either. He notes that when he was bringing him back, the reason it took so long was because Grop kept trying to escape and go back to his original home. And he has to tie him up in the forest. He's literally like it mentions there are vines or ropes or something, tying him up and keeping him there. It's like, that's not healthy. How does he feed himself? I know Hagrid says he feeds himself, but how? (laughs) Yeah, I was wondering that too. He just sits really still and then once a deer walks by, grabs him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's also a security risk for the school. It's not just the forest. Let's imagine he breaks free, right? We don't know what direction he's going to run in, but let's assume he runs towards Hogwarts. And then what happens then? They have a, a giant issue on their hands. It's starting to sound like a security nightmare. Security nightmare. There it is. I wanted to bring this up as well. I mean, Grop aside, this forest is freaking dangerous and the school is parked right next to it. <laughs> and any kid. Yeah. Okay. You're not allowed to go in, but of course, kids are going to be tempted to see what's in there. And there's these centaurs who want to kill humans. I just can't imagine a school well, in the real world. They would never hurt the kids. They say that. They are willing to kill humans who cross them. Right. And, and it's, <laughs> I would not be comfortable I, there if I was a kid. I also think this, is, this particular scene is laying the groundwork for what happens later with Umbridge and her right. confrontation mm-hmm. with the centaurs hagrid you know thinks too much with his heart and not with his head this is another perfect example of that yeah i mean does it tug at your heartstrings a little bit that hagrid reveals to hermione that all the other giants were bullying grob uh for being too small (laughs) at 16 feet and that he would they would have died maybe like they may they maybe would have actually killed Grob because that's how giants roam. So Hagrid is kind of saving his life. But what's the quality of life, given that he's basically a slave? Uh, he's, he's, he's a prisoner in the forest where he doesn't want to be. Like, where does free will cross with Hagrid's best interests for Grob? Just add him to the list, right? Go back to Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah. You have Norbert. Tuh. You have Fluffy, you have Buckbeak. I'm sure I'm missing others along the way, but Grop is just another example of, of yeah. uh, somebody who is of a huge risk to pretty much anybody outside of Hagrid. And Hagrid, in this case, is getting beat up pretty good. Yeah, he's just not in touch with reality at all, period. Like, even though he's been teaching Grop some English and some phrases, his introduction of Harry and Hermione to Grop goes poorly 
it's it's still not he's unable to accomplish even the most basic level of communication and Hagrid every time we see him in this book he's been purple and bleeding it just to like to what friends said to Harry your attempt is not working like Hagrid's attempt is not working he needs to understand and feel that like what is he thinking mhm yeah i forgot aragog too let's oh, not yeah. let's well, not forget yeah. aragog what's the one that got him expelled yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and the one that almost also would have killed harry and ron if it weren't for a, a certain flying fort anglia mm-hmm. right all right well i think we beat up hagrid enough on top of time for the hagrid suck count <laughs> lots of he's, times he's, this chapter he's been beat up enough in this book so we can oh, leave yeah. him alone for a little bit but once uh harry and hermione make it back up to the school alluded to this earlier but uh they're hearing a very much of a different tune than what they were anticipating and that is the gryffindors singing weasley as our king and apparently ron won the match he's good at quidditch something happened all that needed to happen was for harry and hermione to dip away for a couple of hours and <laughs> magical things happened to well, ron he didn't notice pitch. that <laughs> well yeah that's the that's the thing i i was gonna say that too is it clearly he didn't notice they weren't there yeah he probably would have panicked and gotten distracted but it's said earlier in the chapter maybe by hermione that Fred and George being off the Quidditch team might be a good thing for Ron because the twins may intimidate him. Right. Right. And this, it's such a great moment because Ron is like hoisted up on the shoulders of his classmates. He's carrying the Quidditch cup. And we'll all remember in book one, when Ron looks in the mirror of Erised, this is what he sees. <gasps> he oh, sees yeah. himself as head boy holding the, and Quidditch captain. Of course, he's not quite either of those things here, but close enough. Um, mm-hmm. And he sees himself holding the Quidditch cup, standing out amongst all of his brothers um, as successful and accomplished. And Ron finally gets that moment. Aww. Good for him. Yes. Justice for Ron. It's all downhill from here, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's and it's perfectly, I don't want to say it's subversive. It's cool that the Gryffindors are able to claim the Weasleys or King song as their own. You know, change a couple of words to always lets the quaffle in or from always lets the quaffle in to never lets the quaffle in. It's see that writes itself, you know, like Mm -hmm. all of a sudden the Gryffindors have a rallying song and the Slytherins are just poo poo. They're just gone. Okay, so let's turn to the Umbridge suck count. She didn't have a big role in this chapter. We just have one here right now, wrongly accusing Hagrid of putting a Niffler in the office. Mm. Yeah, I want to know anything who else did though. It. But yeah, I can't think of anything else. No, I mean she no. really gets her comeuppance in this chapter. So it's it. it yeah, I, I can't really think of her sucking too much. You, you could say not getting the school in order faster. Because at the beginning of the chapter, yeah, just not having any semblance of control over the school. I added just just for giggles, uh, letting Filch punt students (laughs) in the American edition. Agree, letting him live out his fantasy of having a horsewhip. Can we just make that one and say enabling Filch's worst? I already played the laugh though. It, it oh, just automatically damn. got added it to the tally. Yeah. 
right. And not acknowledging umbridgeitis as an official sickness and giving out <laughs> detentions for well, wait, four uh, straight classes. Maybe I don't know. Umbridgeitis is real. We gotta get to hundred before the end of the book. <laughs> we do. We will. We'll get there. I'm sure we will. Yeah. We're now at eighty-eight. Only twelve to go. Don't worry. Okay, and now it's time for MVP of the week. Now, mine is actually the most vicious player of the week, and that is Hagrid for taking these two kids into the Forbidden Forest. I don't care if the centaurs are like, oh, we wouldn't touch kids. It's still extremely dangerous. And to put them next to that giant, vicious. Vicious. Yep. I'm going to give it to Ron for breaking his losing streak. Not only does he do that, he does it without anyone else's help. He's down Mm. to himself. That's a true MVP. Yeah. I'm going to give it to Peeves for just making Umbridge's life a living hell. Most valuable Peeves. (laughs) 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 And I'm going to give it to Magorian for not hurting foals. Okay. And now let's rename the chapter Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 30. Double danger for Granger, who must teach a stranger. I renamed the chapter Harry Potter in the Order of the Phoenix, Chapter Thirty. Niffler in the office. All right, uh, I went with. I didn't like that the- one. I'll just be honest. I didn't like that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Jeez, Andrew. <laughs> I'm going to work hard to impress you the next time. <laughs> okay. Uh, Order of the Phoenix, Chapter Thirty: Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. <laughs> Or hide them. I that I played around with both of those, but <laughs> hide's probably a better one. Order of the Phoenix, chapter thirty. Sorry, you want us to do what? <laughs> <laughs> if you have any feedback about today's discussion, send it on in. Use the feedback form on mugglecast.com or email mugglecast at gmail.com. You can also use that email address to send us a voice memo. We love hearing from you as well. And like Micah said at the beginning of the episode, we are striving to reply to every email we receive, and we do re- we do read every single email as well. So thank you to everybody who takes the time to write in. It's great yep. because it's it's lovely to hear from everybody. Because when we're podcasting, we're we're talking to nobody, we're talking to each other, but there's no audience. So to hear from you really means a lot. Well, there's our patrons. Yes, that's true. That's true. But I, they are I get listening what you're live. Saying. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And, and and here's the thing. I mean, we, we try our best also when we include these emails to include everything. But I think, as you know, Andrew, like people like to write a lot. And once they start mm-hmm. theorizing and thinking about things, there's some lengthy emails that come in and, and you know, we want to make sure we acknowledge those. But sometimes the easiest way to do that is just by responding to the email as opposed to including it in the show. So thanks, everybody who writes in. We do love hearing from you. And Micah mentioned our patrons. Patrons do have access to each episode as we are recording it. So thanks to everybody who's joining us on this Saturday morning. If you become a patron and pledge at the $5 level or higher, you will receive a MuggleCast 15th anniversary t-shirt. Our 15th birthday is this August, and we're celebrating with our first shirt in about four years. So pledge by June 30th to be eligible to receive yours. And of course, you'll get instant access to lots of other benefits too. Years of content. And we're about to record another installment of Bonus MuggleCast. In celebration of all eight movies being on HBO Max, I wanted to discuss what is our go-to Harry Potter movie. 
I don't necessarily mean our favorite movie, but if we have all eight at our fingertips, just a tap away, we don't have to get up and pull a DVD out of the closet. Ugh. <laughs> Which movie will we lean towards? So we'll discuss that. And we also asked our patrons to share which movie is their go-to and why. So we'll have a lighthearted, fun discussion about which movie we'll just pull up. It's time now for Quizitch. Last week's question, who was the first person to score a goal against Ron? This chapter, it's the only goal that Harry and Hermione see. The correct answer is, of course, Roger Davies, the Ravenclaw captain. Correct answers were submitted by Sup Sarah, Samwise Potter Skywalker, Reese without her spoon, Bort Voldemort, Sydney Count Ravioli, Joan Glomsicker, Caleb McReynolds, Rachel, Katie Moore, and Jason King. And... For next week's question, who is the head of the Wizarding Examinations Authority? Hmm. Okay. It's Owl's time, baby. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We would also appreciate if you followed us on social media. We are MuggleCast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We will post a picture of my lovely new canvas print of that infamous JK Rowling goat. tweet this week. Well, we should post your goat. Well, we, we should, should all we should take our goats all to the take... park. <laughs> I'll like walk our leash. stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And take pictures of our goats out in the wild. I was going to say, you might as well film the reactions of people around <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> Put a mask on that goat. <laughs> no, definitely their reactions to grown adults <laughs> dragging around a stuffed goat wouldn't be... Wouldn't be more capture worthy. I see some weird stuff around here. People walk with their parrots and other animals that really don't need to oh. be walked. Yeah, I, that sounds like New Orleans. I, I remember <laughs> I used to see like people on the street with like snakes around their necks and all kinds of Ugh. crazy stuff. <laughs> all right, thank you everybody for listening. We really appreciate your support. Hope everybody is doing well. We'll see you next week. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm uh, Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.